Welcome to episode 333, All the Threes. Have you ever thought that maybe it's time to give up the drink? Maybe you've tried putting the wine, the beer or the cocktail down only for it to end up back in your hand and in your face a few days later. If you're a busy mum or a woman that is so busy with everyone else's stuff that wine and chocolate is the only time or the only place that you get to do something for you, then this episode here is one that you want to listen to because we're talking about what it's really like to get control of your alcohol consumption, what the root cause of your perpetual need for alcohol is, and what life can look like beyond booze. Plus, we have a bit of a dig at how Australian and UK social life is set up to make people feel guilty for not drinking. But fortunately, there is an important public service announcement in this episode that will change all of that. Cultural revolution starts right here. (laughs) Anyway, how to get beyond booze. Let's dive into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? We've got a juicy conversation to have with you today. And although myself, I work in the broad world of sort of food, disease, and behavior change, Interestingly, a common denominator in a lot of the clients that I see is that they don't consider alcohol to be a part of their food challenges. However, the alcohol binge is just as real as the sugar binge, which is why in 2024, it's my mission to coach 500 people to get control of their sugar cravings and sugar binges so they can stop yo-yo dieting, stop obsessing about food, and finally create a body that they feel confident being in. And alcohol is a big part of this equation, particularly for women in the age range of 40 to 60 years old, which is why I want to introduce you to Sarah Rusbatch, whom over the last two years has become a very dear, lovely friend of mine, which is wonderful to be able to say. Sarah is Australia's leading grey area drinking coach and, well, possibly at this point, the world's leading grey area drinking coach, given that she's just released her new book called Beyond Booze. And I got an invite to the launch party in Sydney, which is pretty cool to be able to say as well. She's a passionate ambassador for sharing her story and letting other women know what life without booze is really like. As many have latched onto drinking as a daily habit that ends up being their only escape from the chaos of mum life, work life, wife life, or even trying to spice up solo life. Yet these women, despite drinking regularly, don't identify as alcoholics because their lives are relatively functional. Sarah herself had her last drink in April 2019, and her life since has been changed beyond recognition, and she's been helping thousands of women all over the globe to get control of their alcohol issues. At this point, she's appeared all over mainstream media, but most importantly, she was here first on episode 210 of the show, so head over there when you're done here for more of Sarah's incredible wisdom. Anyhow, Sarah, welcome to the show. What's going on? Hey, Maddie. Thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome. What's been going on? You're an official author. I am. So my book came out yesterday, so it has been quite the whirlwind. Let me tell you, no one quite prepares you for the feeling of seeing your book in real life in a bookshop next to Gabor Mate, who is like one of my heroes. And then my friend just sent me a picture of my book next to his. And I was like, oh my goodness, it's actually happened. It's real. So yeah, it's been quite the roller coaster the last 24 hours. I heard you talking recently saying that it was a a childhood dream of yours to be an author and you've made it. Was it all that you expected it to be? I think it's more. I think, of course, you get the sense of achievement, satisfaction and fulfillment from having, you know, fulfilled that dream. 
But because my book is a mission book, it's, you know, like you, you and I together both have very strong missions with the work that we do and the people we want to support. And, you know, I had one message come through yesterday, Matty, from a lady who she's not in my community. She'd seen the book and she picked it up and she'd read the introduction and she sent me a message and she went, I've read your introduction with tears streaming down my face because I finally feel less alone. And that's that's why I wrote the book. And so that as well just brings me so much joy. That is so beautiful. Just so that we can clarify early on in this conversation for anybody that might be new to your world, what is grey area drinking? Yeah. So when we think about someone's alcohol use, many of us have stayed within the quite archaic terminology of alcohol use, which was I'm a social drinker or I'm an alcoholic. And it's simply not the case of being one or the other. We now know there's a spectrum. And in the medical world, they now talk about alcohol use disorder as being mild, moderate or severe. So alcohol use disorder is classified as 14 or more units of alcohol per week. So for women who drink wine, that's approximately eight glasses of wine a week. So above that, we're moving into that alcohol use disorder, um, mild, moderate and severe. Gray area drinking would be the mild and moderate level of that, where we're drinking above the recommended units, but we don't meet the criteria for dependence. We don't need to have medical support to withdraw from alcohol, and we're still functioning. So I was very much in the gray area. I didn't drink every single day. I didn't drink in the morning. I still held down a job. I still was raising my kids. I was still running half marathons, for goodness sake, but I was still drinking heavily. And the problem, I think, is that When we use terms like alcoholic, if you don't identify as being an alcoholic, then you kind of go, well, I'm okay then. Well, I don't need to stop because we tell ourselves and society has told us the only people that have to stop drinking are people who are alcoholics. And there's so much shame and stigma that comes with that. And the reason I've written this book, particularly for women, is to take away all of that and to say you don't have to be an alcoholic to decide to quit drinking. You can simply do it for a number of reasons, but one being you want to feel better in yourself. That really reminds me, as you were describing the person that might consider themselves a gray area drinker, is the way that the medical system basically tells people they're fine until they have a disease, even though the person that walks into the clinic or that you see on the street is clearly overweight, clearly hasn't seen the sun in a while, clearly has terrible skin, but until the blood say you have cancer or you have diabetes, It's like, oh, you're fine. Keep being you. And it's like it falls into that sort of space. And so potentially it's just a a symptom of our society that until you fall into a label, you're totally fine. And the path to get there doesn't really matter. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And then the danger with that is that you have that no one makes change when they need to make change and they only make change when it's too late or perhaps they've already had the cancer diagnosis or they've already had got very advanced level of liver disease or do you know what I mean and so it's that's why I love working in this area because I get to support people before it gets to to some critical stages. You can correct me if I'm wrong but my understanding is that when it comes to teenagers, younger people like 20s maybe even 30s is that that demographic of people is actually reducing their alcohol consumption. And, and my, without having done much homework, it's probably social media, disconnection from parties and everybody can have a party at home by themselves now online. But I'm curious why that social media influence or that distraction from being in real life has not impacted the group of women that are sort of 40 to 60. Like, why is it going up for those women and not down like everybody else? 
So I think there's a few factors at play. Yes, you're absolutely correct. The younger, the teenagers, the 20s um, are drinking less. They've got the statistics. 19 to 25-year-olds are drinking the least amount of alcohol of previous generations at that age. And, and again, I think it's and we've got more awareness now. It's expensive. Like going out to the pub and drinking yeah. is way more expensive than back in our day, right? There's the social media. There's, there's just different forms of connection. Whereas I feel like for middle-aged women who are where it's the only demographic where alcohol use is going up, there's several factors at play. So number one, we've normalized alcohol as the self-care tool that every woman needs. So today's the day that we're recording, which is the um, end of January and many kids across, well, certainly Western Australia, perhaps the whole of Australia have gone back to school today. My Facebook feed is filled with memes and adverts and photos of mums sitting at home guzzling wine because the kids have finally gone back. They were talking about it on the radio this morning of how many mums would be dropping their kids at school and going straight to the bottle shop to stock up on, on wine for the day. We live in a society that has normalised mum needs wine. Wine is self-care for busy mums. And many of the women that I'm working with, and I'm sure with you, they're stressed, they're overwhelmed, they're anxious, they're managing so many things, they don't take enough time for themselves. And alcohol being a depressant on the body gives an instant quick fix to help us to feel in the moment calmer and gives us that false sense that it's working as a relaxant. And I say false sense because actually the longer term effect is it causes more stress and anxiety in the body than if we weren't drinking at all. But in the short term, we get that calming effect. And many of the women I work with, they've got nothing else in their toolkit. They're using food or wine. And that's and that's it. And so the deeper work of removing alcohol isn't actually about removing alcohol. As, and the same for you with the food. The deeper work is actually, what do I add in to support myself so I don't need to turn to the bottle every night? Often something I hear, and you probably hear this too, is that when I'm talking about behavior change and understanding, you know, why was the sugar or why was the food you know, the crux in the beginning, why did it have that hold over me? And we do the work and we figure out whatever it is, it might be loneliness, the absence of love, you know, too much stress, overwhelm. And I'm like, okay, we've got to one, learn how to manage that situation differently. But two, we still have to put something in that manages that emotion, because the chaos of life is going to happen. Whereas I think sort of fad diets really just say, just grit your teeth, and you'll be fine, you know, and you will power it or you know, you white knuckle it for a few weeks, and then that runs out and you're back where you started. But the comment that I often hear is Maddie, doesn't matter, I could do all the other things in the world, nothing is going to be as good as that chocolate hit. And do you hear the same thing? It's like, it doesn't matter what else I do to manage my stress in that moment, nothing is going to be as good as the wine. Yeah, nothing's as good, but nothing's as worse either. Totally. Do you know what I mean? Like, we, we've got to be prepared for the seesaw effect. Like, in that moment, like, I call it the warm honey feeling of when you have a glass of wine and it feels like warm honey is just trickling down your body and, and you feel that, that calming sense because it's a poison that is causing us to release GABA, which makes us feel relaxed. But what it does is then go on to cause so much unbalance in the brain, which causes our brain to release so many other stress hormones that then leave us feeling anxious and on edge. So I say to many of the women that I work with, let's just start experimenting and let's start looking at what's the closest thing for you. For some, it is like like going having an alcohol-free drink. Like some of them just fine. It's the habit and the ritual of pouring a drink when they get home from work. And so having an alcohol-free drink can really help. For others, it's 
going and doing a yoga class. It's going and doing a meditation. It's going for a walk. It's, you know, cooking a really nice meal. It's listening to music. We've got to start experimenting with what else can work, even if it doesn't work 10 out of 10. Is it a close nine? Mm. Well, and, and arguably alcohol is in the same boat, right? Because it doesn't work 10 out of 10 times because we usually go back for more. We usually go back again exactly. and again and again because it didn't do it the first time. Exactly. And, and that's tolerance, right? We start building up tolerance. So it stops being just one glass and then we want the rest and then we want the rest. And so we actually, we've got to start like really questioning the beliefs that we've got about alcohol. Does it actually relax me? And is there something else that could relax me? What do I get from it? And what is it taking away? Because we, we forget to look at the fact that that one glass of wine, that I would say that the positives may last for 15 minutes. And then the rest, you know, usually then we go back for more because it's worn off and then we feel a bit edgy and then we go and have another one. And then, oh, dear, there's gone the bottle where and then that impacts our sleep. It makes us feel exhausted. Then we're full of self-loathing and shame because we drank more than we wanted to. And then we wake up the next day. We miss going to the gym. We eat shit food because we're hungover. And and so the actual knock on effect, is it worth that 15 minutes? Quite often not. But we've got to start really thinking about that. It's re- I find it really hard, even myself, in this sort of high-paced world, especially, you know, both of us have got these businesses which are got a lot to do with social media and and it seems like if you can manage the food or the alcohol, there's just as much high-paced short-term dopamine on our phones and on our computers and the kids are in that world as well and it's really challenging to manage. You know, that's 10-second dopamine hits are never far away. They're, they're really not. And so it's finding what works for me on that natural level and I don't know many people who've got sober, for whom exercise has not featured in some way. Mm, why is that? Because we get that dopamine hit from the exercise. We get you know, dopamine, we get endorphins, it makes us feel good. We, we start to feel stronger, we feel healthier. Perhaps it's getting us out of the house, or we're getting more vitamin D. We, you know, that, the, the knock-on effect of doing that is, is absolutely massive. And so for many of the people, even if it's getting out and walking, it's, it's doing something to change up the routine. There was a thing you said before about doing the deeper work and we sort of you touched on my work as well, but what exactly is the deeper work? Because I can imagine there's some people that are like, oh, it's another one of these fluffy spiritual journeys that I've got to go on. You might actually have to go on, but what is the deeper work? What do you mean? Yeah, so it's a few things. So it's number one, why was I drinking or why am I drinking? If I know that I'm not drinking, I'm not a take it or leave it drinker. So someone that just has a glass of wine every now and then and doesn't think about it. If I know that I'm at the point where I'm using alcohol, I need my wine tonight. If you've ever said that to yourself, let's start looking at, first of all, what's the the gap that alcohol is plugging? Because that's what we've got to look at. Alcohol is actually your medicine. It's We've got to look at what the problem is um, to actually, alcohol's not the solution. Mm-hmm. So we can look at why. So I've done a lot of extensive research with this in my community. And the three overriding reasons that I get are boredom, stress, and loneliness. So we've got a generation of middle-aged women who are bored, stressed, and lonely. Mm -hmm. And so then the deeper work is, well, let's start looking at that. Let's start, when we take alcohol out, what are we going to start adding in? So the deeper work is, how am I managing my stress? What am I doing instead? How can I make changes perhaps through the day so I don't even get as stressed? What do I have a morning routine or is the first thing I do in the morning go straight on my phone? You know, some of those simple things that that we can do. The second thing is loneliness. Okay, because many of the women I work with, particularly since COVID, they have noticed that their drinking has increased. They've become solo drinkers. They're doing it at home. 
They've stopped going out as much. They're looking forward to their evening wine. So then they can't drive and go and do something. And so then their world gets smaller. And so let's start looking at, okay, if we're taking the alcohol out, let's join an online community as a starting point so that we're in a place with other um, people who are doing it. And then let's start adding in the hobbies, which again, looks into the, the boredom piece as well. Many of the women I work with, and I talk about this in the book, I think my opening line in the book is hobbies. What 40 year old woman's got time for hobbies? Because my hobby was literally drinking. That was all <laughs> I did for myself in my 40s, my early 40s. And so then it's looking at what are we adding in that we enjoy doing? And many women don't even know. Like I'll look at them and I'll say, what do you love doing for fun outside of drinking? And many will look at me with tears in their eyes and say, I have no idea. And I'm like, that's okay, my love, nor did I. But let's start exploring. This is the fun bit. This is where we get to go on a journey of experimentation and going, what might I want to try? And I've got clients who've taken up horse riding and tap dancing and drum lessons and set up jam making businesses and gone back to university and done an interior design course. And they've started to add so much in to create more richer, fulfilled lives because they're not just sitting at home on the sofa, scrolling their phones, drinking a bottle of wine every night. Do you find people have challenges with mum guilt uh, because they've prioritized everyone else so much for, you know, maybe their whole life, but especially when once they've had hubby and kids that the practice of going out and doing something or getting a hobby for themselves is guilt inducing. And so it's so much easier to hang around home, do what the kids need me to do, because I can carry a glass of wine through that activity and sort of get my own hit. But do you see that mum guilt come up? And like, what's your thoughts about how to navigate it? All the time. I've got a whole chapter in my book about this because you're right. This is the thing. You can drink a glass of wine whilst unloading the dishwasher, making the school lunches, ironing the shirts, making dinner, peeling the potatoes and running a bath. And so you feel like that's your reward in a life that is just taking from you where you're being pulled in every single direction all the time. Um, And what I say is come and spend a week in my world, you, you won't feel guilty anymore. Coming to like, you know, like I, I'm very much an advocate for women standing up and going, I get to matter, get to have a life that I love. I get to create a life that I love. And that doesn't have to mean being out of the house every evening. It's not possible for many of us, but it can be about reclaiming some time to ourselves just to do something that we really enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find the same thing with the people that I work with. And sometimes we literally have to start at five minutes. It's like, totally. yeah, like saying five minutes, phone out, doors close, you know, mum's got a break for this five minutes. And, and even in that period, we can see a bit of guilt come up, but we, you know, we've got to start somewhere. And I just flip it a little bit. And I say, think about what you're role modeling to your kids. I did an incredible talk last week in my January challenge with, um, Paul Dillon, who's the head researcher of teens and alcohol, and he was talking directly about how much kids are influenced by their parents drinking. And he was saying by the age of three years old, a toddler can tell whether a drink or not is alcoholic and in what situation they would expect to see an alcoholic drink. So they start to make those uh, associations when mum's making dinner, she drinks wine. When dad's watching the footy, he drinks beer. They can't even talk properly at that age, and yet they have that understanding in their subconscious brain. So I reframe it as think about the role modeling you're doing to your kids. Do you want your daughter 
to feel like she can never take time for herself? Or do you want a role model to her? Mum needs to take 20 minutes. She's had a stressful day to go and do a meditation because I know it really helps to soothe and calm me. I'll be back in 20 minutes and I'll see you then. But starting to have that language. I had a girlfriend say to me, oh, I'm the worst mum in the world. I've been playing so much tennis recently. So my, you know, the kids don't see me and I'm out on a Tuesday, Thursday night and I play on a Saturday afternoon. And I said, I think that makes you the best mum in the world because you're role modeling to your kids that it is perfectly acceptable for mum to have a hobby and do something that she loves. Because if you don't do that, your daughter's going to grow up thinking, no, 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 mum just has to be at home all the time and, and she just drinks wine to cope. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Totally. And I think the other side of that is that when we set standards and boundaries in our life, we educate other people on how to treat us. And a lot of people and a lot of mums and women say, nobody respects me, nobody listens to me, nobody thinks of me. And that's often a symptom of the way that they have taught everybody in their environment to, te- to, to treat them because they haven't actually said, actually, I'm going to do this, you know, or they haven't had the courage or the space or been taught to to say, I'm actually going to carve some time out for me. And in the beginning, everybody reacts a little bit to that because they're like, what do you mean? This is a bit different. You don't usually do that. What are we going to do if you're not here to cook dinner? And obviously, there's a huge family adjustment period that needs to be undertaken there as well. But you you need to start training the people around you as to how they need to show up for you. Absolutely. I did a really interesting workshop with someone recently talking about the difference between tension and guilt. Mm -hmm. So most of the time... We think that it's guilt, but in that situation, do we actually have anything to feel guilty for? Like taking 20 minutes to go and lie on our bed and do a meditation when everyone's been fed, they haven't had their dinner, they're just having downtime. Do we have anything to be guilty for? No. So what's the feeling that we have? Is it guilt? No, it's tension. It's tension because we feel uneasy in ourselves as if we shouldn't be doing that, but we can sit with that tension. And the more we do that, the easier it gets to start being able to do things for ourselves. You know, the more conversations we have, the more I'm like, at some point, you must have been through my program and <laughs> checked out all the stuff that I, I talk about. I have a module that's on a very similar concept. Right, right, right. Okay, there you go. <laughs> oh, you're funny. You're funny. So the other thing that I was curious about was, and again, another thing that pops up in the sugar space, and obviously there's a lot of sugar in alcohol, so it makes a lot of sense that these worlds combine, but is the idea of moderators and abstainers. 
Because we see that with sugar addicts and people that can't regulate their chocolate consumption or their croissants or whatever it might be, is that everybody's tried to be an abstainer because they say, right, on Monday, I'm never going to eat that food again. And then by the end of that day, even sometimes, or by Wednesday or by the weekend, it's like, oh, it's Friday. Or it's like, oh, it's the last Wednesday of the week. I've got to celebrate, you know? And so it's like, we all, well, not all of us, but because there is some of those, you know, moderators out there. I'm jealous of them personally. Um, but you know that everybody's tried so many times to do the abstinence thing and moderate and it doesn't really work or they collapse or fall apart is it the same with alcohol is there moderators and abstainers or uh, is it like for everyone that you work with everyone just has to be an abstainer a permanent abstainer I would say for 90 percent of the women I work with abstinence is just so much easier it's so much easier to have none than it is to have one and I see it time and time again. I have a woman recently who's just done a year sober. And then she was like, now I'll be able to moderate. And within a couple of weeks, she was back to nightly drinking. Well, that's your story, right? Yeah. Well, I hadn't done a year. I'd done two stints of 100 days. And both times went straight back to, to drinking at, at the same level. For me, I think the difference with alcohol and sugar is you can just say, I don't drink alcoholic drinks. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a very, very clear cut line. Yep. With sugar, it's so much harder because you've got hidden sugars. You've got, mm. well, does bread class as a sugar because it's still high glucose? Does pasta, does, or is it just chocolate or is it just cakes? Or you, you know, There's so many variations, whereas with alcohol, it's kind of more clear cut of just going, I don't drink alcohol. Yeah. And, and that is, that's the line. And for, I would say, as I said, 90, 95% of the people I work with, it's just so much easier to just go, nah, it's off the table because it's addictive, because it skewers your reality and your perceptions and messes with the equilibrium of all the neurotransmitters in the brain because it's a toxin. It's not something that the body needs. Like the body still needs energy, right? It still needs, well, some people would say it doesn't need glucose, but, um, but you know, like we still need to have those certain things, whereas if the body just simply doesn't need alcohol in any way whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Having said that, and obviously, You've got a UK background and then an Australian background and I've got an Australian background. Socially, it, it feels like you can't just say no to alcohol. People, I have clients that, that decide to you know, stop alcohol or, or reduce their consumption and they're either really fearful of the social ridicule that's coming um, or the social ridicule actually happens and people are really judgmental and Ooh. passive aggressive. And, and so it feels like there's this, yeah, this, you're going to be kicked out of your own family or your own tribe of people that you previously connected with if you do make that choice or even say that statement out loud at a party yeah um, and I've written a whole chapter in my book about this because it's a massive one like alcohol is the only drug we have to justify not taking you say to someone you've quit smoking the feedback is well done good on you you say you've quit drinking don't be so boring just have one what's what since when did you become so boring and it keeps us stuck and it, it can be, you know, it definitely can be fearful. And so I've put a whole list of tips and strategies in that chapter in the book. But the main thing is, if we know that alcohol is not serving us anymore, if we know that we've passed the point where it's taking more than it's giving, we can't stay drinking just to make other people happy. Mm-hmm. We have, we deserve to do the thing that is right for ourselves. Yeah, I agree. So let this be a public service announcement to everybody that if somebody says, I've quit alcohol, celebrate them, congratulate them. Totally. Yeah, I do a lot of corporate talks. And I always say, 
if you come across, if you take one thing from this talk, please let it be that if someone says to you that they they don't want an alcoholic drink, please do not say to them, oh, go on, don't be so boring. Please say to them, good on you, mate. What can I get you instead? Because we are in an alcohol-centric society where it is celebrated everywhere we go. I've done half marathons where I've been given a beer at the end. I've been to yoga classes that have finished with a glass of wine. I've been to first birthdays at nine o'clock in the morning where everyone's given a glass of champagne on arrival. Like it is everywhere and it's so expected in Australia and the UK that any kind of celebration, get-together gathering would have alcohol. Yeah, it's hard. I don't remember one that wasn't. Actually, I've been to a few in the last couple of years. The more and more that my friends have become health coaches and wellness coaches, inevitably that world leads to a more spiritual community. <laughs> and so I've been yes. to a lot of a lot of more spiritual events, which are just like they're cacao ceremonies or, you know, they're all of these other types of ceremonies that like nobody would even think to bring alcohol to some of these gatherings. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, the mainstream Australian would probably look at that group and be like crazy hippies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. The other thing that I'm curious about too, and this might be a bit of a grey area. <laughs> I didn't even mean to say that. Um, <laughs> might be a bit of a grey area, but is, and I think about artificial sweeteners in my world in this conversation, which is which is a grey area. But alcohol, non-alcoholic replacements, because, and the reason that I mention it being a grey area is because is it perpetuating the same behaviour and giving the illusion of being stuck in the same pattern. And I think the same when I deal with people with artificial sweeteners is that it, they're still in the same unhelpful cycle. And it, and it might be a good step out, out, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily the place that we want to spend all of our remaining time, if that makes sense. So where are yeah. you at with that idea? So a lot of my ladies use alcohol-free drinks initially, mm-hmm. and many of them have said they would never have got sober if it wasn't for them. Yeah. So it's, I have a saying at the start, which is keep the ritual, change the ingredient. So if you have a drink at half past five every night when you finish work, pour a kombucha or an alcohol-free champagne or an alcohol-free gin and tonic or whatever it might be. I do find if you're still using them really heavily a month or so later, it's very likely that you're going to go back to alcohol. Um, But if you find that it's been a, a support at the beginning, but then you find you need it less and less, then... You, it, it's a great tool to begin with. Like I, used, when I first got sober, it's coming up to five years now, so there wasn't the same availability of alcohol-free drinks that there is now. So I just didn't have it available. I would sometimes get an alcohol-free beer. I think they would have that Carlton Zero in Coles, and that would be about it. And I would take that to a barbecue sometimes. But now there's so much, um, and I've definitely had times in my life where I've leaned on it a little bit more. Maybe if I'm going to an event where I feel a little bit awkward and clunky because I know everyone's getting pissed, and I don't want to look like I'm the person that's standing there with the water, so I'll take you know the alcohol-free champagne. Whereas now I just don't care if someone says to me, "Oh, don't you drink?" I'll quite happily go. No, you know I don't have shame around it. But at the beginning, it can feel very sensitive, and we feel quite vulnerable. So it's. You do you, and if you find the alcohol-free drinks at the start really help you, then that's a great place to start. I can imagine in that party situation, by the end of the party, you've just got a gathering of people that are seated in front of you listening to you present and talk (laughs) after somebody's (laughs) asked that question and you've just converted everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, no, I tend not to say anything when people are drinking because I find that they're not my audience, really. (laughs) They're they're the hecklers, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> totally. They're not ready yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, in the morning. It was so funny. I went to a Robbie Williams concert recently, so it was just full of middle-aged women absolutely smashed. And my friend said, are you slipping your card into all their handbags so they could all wake up in the morning and phone you? <laughs> no, no, maybe I should do a public announcement. In the morning, if you feel like this, because Robbie's 25 years sober, I'm sure he didn't let me. Oh, I was going to say, buy some advertising space. There's usually ads going around at those venues yeah, between yeah, yeah. bands, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although you might just get pummeled with tomatoes. <laughs> well, true. Or beer bottles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Something else that I think about with this whole food drink, you know, um, man-made food challenge is the line between whether the failure is the system that we are in or personal empowerment. And, and the example that I like to use to sort of paint the picture of this, um, which possibly you use as well, we do a lot of the same stuff, is the idea that if you've got kids in class and 70% of them fail, you don't blame 70% of the kids, right? You blame the teacher. You say that obviously the delivery wasn't, wasn't appropriate. But if there was two kids, you'd probably blame the kids for not studying. And so if I look at society and the amount of people that are drinking or the amount of people that are overweight, and the amount of people that struggle to eat and drink correctly, despite knowing, because there's so, so many resources that they know, they know generally speaking that meat and veggies is pretty good and drinking too much alcohol is less than ideal. But so many people are still challenged with it. So I think back to that you know, classroom example is that if there's so many people challenged by it, is it not really about personal empowerment at all and we need to spend our energy changing the system? A great question. I think definitely I lean more towards the system but I do but but then why isn't everybody and so then it would be a case of I do feel like there are many factors that that occur to to basically um, determine whether someone will go on to develop problematic drinking one of which or a big part of which is society but um but the, the neural pathways in the brain, how much dopamine your brain releases in response to alcohol varies very much from person to person, whether there's been trauma, how old you start drinking, because the science now tells us if you started drinking below the age of 17, you are significantly more likely to develop alcohol use disorder. Mm-hmm. So there's all of these factors at play that will make a difference. But there's also the fact that we live in a society that normalizes everyday drinking as a totally acceptable and normal and in fact encouraged form of self-care. Yeah. And I think as well, you know, about the accessibility and the price and the fact that, yeah, it's marketed in all of these different places. And obviously something they changed a couple of decades ago was the marketing laws around cigarettes. And, you know, in, at least in my world, I remember growing up and, you know, people smoked everywhere. Um, mm. you know, when I was much younger and now it's, it's like, I don't even think of it because I don't see it. It's not in part wow. of the daily system. It's not a part of the daily marketing that I see. And so I think about that in regards to alcohol and food is that the, the system is and the way that supermarkets are designed and the advertising and the marketing that just is conditioning us over and over and over again, and the associations of sport and alcohol, and then, you know, music or concerts and alcohol. And, and it's like, you know, the bigger marketing sort of beast is probably more responsible for it than just not everybody's, you know, everyone's not strong enough. Totally. And um, I talk about in my book, the fact that it was about 30 years ago that Big Alcohol um, did some deliberate research into what sectors were underperforming in the sales of alcohol and realised women. And that was when their marketing campaign became purely focused at women. 
with mm-hmm. the amount of money that they were spending. This is where pink drinks started. This is where all the vodka cruises and the, um, you know, the, the, they call it training wheels, alcohol training wheels, like the mock, um, the, the cocktails, the, um, so like the Alco all those pops. different Alco pops, yeah, Smirnoff Ice, you know, all of those different ones. And then there's loads of research that went into the fact that many of these big alcohol companies were doing it to get brand loyalty from young mm. girls so that they would buy the, the grown-up version of that product when they were older. So there's research that shows when they specifically started targeting women and it directly corresponds with when alcohol use disorder in women started to increase. Yeah, that's so interesting. I was r- random side tangent, but I spoke to somebody at the health department recently was talking about, um, I forget which year it was, but basically a marketing campaign that happened for toothpaste. And originally everybody only put a tiny amount of toothpaste on their toothbrush because that's all the directions on the toothpaste actually said you needed. And there was a campaign where they put the full length of the brush oh, of the yeah. bristles. And apparently in one year, toothpaste sales quadrupled because everybody just started using four times the amount of toothpaste. And so I think about that in regards to this conversation. It's like, yeah, just conditioning and marketing to people. Subconsciously, all of a sudden, people are using four times the amount of toothpaste. Yeah, yeah. And thinking that's the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, I was talking the book about Mother's Day and the fact that you'll very rarely see a card or gift that is not in some way related to alcohol. Mum needs wine. I'm the reason my mum needs wine. Thanks, mum, for giving me the wine gene. Like there was, there's so much direct and, you know, discreet messaging that we're receiving all the time that is aimed at women and alcohol. I even think when I type in um, to the emoji search bar, like celebration, You know, the wine bottle, the champagne bottle exploding is always the number one recommended emoji for celebrating. Like it's deeply embedded. Yeah. Yeah. And like what fantastic marketing they have done. They've done one hell of a job. They really have. (laughs) Here we are trying to undo it one person at a time. (laughs) I know. I heard something the other day that said in the UK, if everybody drank the recommended units of alcohol, the alcohol industry in the UK would go bust within a year. Wow. <laughs> like, they do not want you to drink in moderation, despite the fact they have to pay lip service to going, drink, in, drink responsibly, drink in moderation. They rely on heavy drinkers. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It makes total sense. And, and obviously yeah. the disclaimer lines are not dressed up in the same sort of paraphernalia as the ad because they do the ad in a particular way because it's... It, totally. Yeah, it's, it's, it's engaging. It, can, it brings you in. And then the disclaimer at the end of the, like the ad on TV, you know, it's like, please do, please do this responsibly, blah, blah, blah. Nobody's listening to that serious authoritative yeah. message that sounds like it's from the police, yeah. you know? Totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they need exactly. the marketing campaign for the, the disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. I agree. Um, so where can people find you in this amazing book? Yeah, so the book is available bookstores across Australia, uh, Amazon, Booktopia, Dimex, all online, delivery. Um, by the time this podcast airs, it will also be in America and the UK. So from all major booksellers, online and retail shops, I am on Instagram, so you can follow me there, Sarah Rusbatch. And I have a free Facebook community for women called the Women's Wellbeing Collective. Amazing. All of the links for that stuff will be down in the show notes below. So if you're listening, have been vibing with what Sarah's saying, and I hope so because she's a legend, um, you should scroll down, click the link, get involved in Sarah's world. 
Um, and to wrap up, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Probably the link with alcohol and breast cancer. Mm. They've done a study now in Melbourne that shows less than 20% of women are actually aware that alcohol directly causes breast cancer. From memory, it's nine types? Um, seven types of cancer, with one of them being breast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I remember you, last time I, we did a podcast, you were talking about going to a cancer event where you were going to speak and they served alcohol. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I'm not coming. How can I speak at a breast cancer fundraiser when you're serving a level one carcinogen that directly causes <laughs> breast cancer? Like, you wouldn't give someone a packet of fags when they walk in the door for a lung cancer fundraiser. So why are you giving everyone a glass of champagne? <laughs> totally. High five to integrity. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for hanging out. I appreciate it. I'm going to obviously get this out to the people and yeah, we'll catch up. We'll literally catch up really soon. We really will. Thank you so much for having me, Matty. You're so welcome. See you later. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode or learnt anything at all, the gift of your five-star rating would be incredibly helpful. And what's even more powerful is if you write a review. You can do it below each episode on Spotify every time an episode comes out. And inside Apple Podcast, simply find the main page of this show with all the episodes on it, scroll to the bottom, hit write a review, share your amazing feedback, and then hit send. It helps this show grow tremendously and allows me to successfully invite bigger and more famous guests each time we do the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for helping us climb the charts, climb the algorithm and help more people. Oh, and by the way, I have a short disclaimer as well. I just wanted to quickly remind you that the information provided on this podcast is for general informational purposes only. While we strive to bring you accurate and up-to-date content, it's important to note that a lot of this is mixed with opinions, stories, and ideas not supported by mainstream science or medicine. Any advice or suggestions should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult a healthcare provider before making any decisions about the health and wellness of you and your family. Remember too that what works for one person may not work for another. And just as we promote on the show, each person is responsible for their own health decisions. Thank you for tuning in to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. And now, the next episode. Here it is. Here it is.